Welcome, everybody, to Naturally Educated. Today's episode, we're talking Nature Positive 2030, a global goal for nature. This is our last episode of the season, so thank you, everybody, for being around. My name is Majid Al-Qasimi. As always, with me co-hosting... Abdurrahman Al-Zaabi. Pleasure to be with you guys on this final episode of the season. Before we get into this amazing interview, I want to just make sure you all know you can get in touch with us reach out with comments, or even tell us a story, what you can do is reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Environment Abu Dhabi as one word, or find us at our website or YouTube, Environment Agency Abu Dhabi. Give us a like and hit subscribe wherever you find or listen to your podcasts. I'm really looking forward to this, so let's go straight to the interview. Absolutely. Let's do it. Let's learn about how to become nature positive. So today, our guest is Stephen Dickinson. He is a corporate biodiversity expert with Total Energies, and he's based in Paris. Thank you, Stephen, for being on the show with us. A pleasure to be with you. And uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk and reach out to, you know, our local and international audience at the same time. It's a great opportunity. You're welcome. Well, listen, let's, let's start with the sort of background to the Leaders' Pledge and Becoming Nature Positive. Why don't you help us understand that. Yeah, it's a, it's a big topic and it's growing every day in terms of its the momentum that it's generating. Mm. Uh, look, the Leaders' Pledge is, is really focused on parties, so governments, states making those pledges towards uh, nature and biodiversity in particular. It doesn't exclude in its concept and the philosophy behind it for other stakeholders and actors to participate and make their own contributions, namely business. And certainly the, the company I work with, uh, Total Energies, formerly called Total, is no stranger to that. And we have made contributions on, on similar platforms that the Convention on Biological Diversity, for example, has opened up to business yep. in terms of them contributing their public biodiversity commitments. Mm -hmm. That's just an example. Of course, this expands out to civil society at large. It's not just us. There's a huge conservation community also that is actively working to protect nature you know we're in this together we're in the same boat there's no planet b so whatever we do we have to think collectively so last november following the cop 26 climate summit in glasgow scotland we had our minister of climate change and environment maryam bint mohammed al-mahari announced the endorsement of the leaders pledge and in january this year the uae cabinet formalized the endorsement Sort of agreeing that the country would join the leaders' pledge. So we've we've seen the UAE move forward with this, and I'm really glad that we were part of it. Yeah, and I think you know your your country in particular has a lot to be proud of uh, with its 15% uh, surface area that is protected. That's that's really good in terms of the former uh, targets, uh, the global targets for biodiversity, the IG targets, mm -hmm. which were extended from 210 to 220 you know, with a 17% target of protected surface areas. Uh, so I think uh, you should be quite proud of that. Uh, of course, now the next challenge is the next chapter unfolding to us, yeah. the postponed COP15 uh, mm -hmm. that was initially supposed to take place in uh, China because of COVID and the difficulties and challenges there. It's being hosted in Canada now, in Montreal. Mm -hmm. So that's our next key milestone. And, you know, New targets are coming out, so and I'm sure countries like the UAE and others will be numerous to make their own pledges and contributions to expanding 
their protected area networks and both marine and onshore. So it's all there and, and gelling together nicely. Of course, the challenge is immense because today, you know, we we have an increasing level of threat of this nature of this biodiversity that we depend on. So, you know, whether whether you like nature of the bugs and bunnies, but the whales mm-hmm. and the rest, uh, it doesn't really matter. It's simply you depend on it. And that starts with us and the air. The oxygen we're breathing is being produced by forests and, you know, plankton in the seas. Mm. So a healthy planet makes a healthy humanity. It's as simple as that. And so some habits and, and behaviors have to evolve. And that is a work in progress. Not an easy task, but we have to be humble and take things one step at a time. So you know, COP26, major change there. The climate COP was becoming a, a nature COP to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this year in the COP27 in Egypt, you know, we're seeing a dedicated day to biodiversity, which is fantastic. And I've got the privilege of being able to participate and contribute to that. Oh, amazing. That's brilliant. That's great to hear. And obviously climate is a sort of an all-encompassing issue as well, that uh, whatever impacts uh, one area will have an impact on another. You know, you mentioned uh, the challenges that we face, and uh, I want you to introduce us to nature positive, what it is exactly, and why is it the key to our future? Yeah, I think for people to understand why we're talking about this concept, which is really gaining traction very, very rapidly, I think it's responding to a need. And that that need is driven by a very high level of threat of of nature. Uh, The IPBS uh, group is essentially the equivalent for climate working on biodiversity at the UN level, a group of international experts. I've got the pleasure of being able to participate to to some some of that work they're doing. They've essentially released a report back in 2019 explaining the five key threats to biodiversity. Foremost, it's land use change. It's all about converting natural habitats to farming, for example. You know, and of course, we depend on that. Uh, there's also uh, natural resource over-exploitation, fisheries, logging for in forests, and so on. You're essentially losing habitat by putting too much pressure on those natural resources. Mm-hmm. Climate change, like you said, it's global. It's affecting whether you emit on one side of the globe or the other, you know, it all ends up in the same bowl. And, you know, manifestations of that, the whitening of the, uh, the bleaching, sorry, of the uh, Great Barrier Reef in Australia is very visible. And yeah. you guys have a stunning reefs also. I think people could easily relate to that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, then it's also about pollution and, and invasive species. So those are the key threats. And so, you know, that has pushed the nature positive concept forward. And essentially there's no consensus on a single definition of what nature positive means today. It's it's work and it's actually happening now. And there's numerous forums like the ones organized by the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, of which Razan al-Mubarak is the president. That's true. That's true. Yes. Mm-hmm. Represent. <laughs> so yeah, and we, we had pleasure of meeting her very briefly and, and listening to her at the Jeju conference, the IUCN organized in Korea recently. Mm-hmm. So this was all about nature positive. It was written all over the wall. And essentially, you know, what it boils down to for, for our audience is more nature tomorrow. It just means more nature tomorrow compared to, to today. Uh, so mm. there's then, you know, you get into the intricacies of what that means. There's some targets uh, like uh, the 2030 target to essentially curtail that loss of biodiversity, that 1 million species that are threatened with extinction that the IPBS yeah. report has explained, and a lot of response to that, so including the nature-positive uh, narrative. So 
the ideal situation is that we're able to slow down that loss and gradually restore lost values from 2030 onwards. And of course, governments have a key role, you know, through their regulatory role to allow for the right setting for society to operate under and to make those contributions. But business also has that. And, you know, for example, our company, we released our new biodiversity ambition in September 2020 just prior to the initial dates for COP15. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, it was delayed several times. So, you know, everyone has the opportunity to make a contribution. And I would say, you know, for UAE and the Gulf uh, and the MENA region in particular, because you're in uh, arid environments, you are essentially responsible for a very sensitive ecosystem. Absolutely. Desert yeah. ecosystem is very fragile. It's very hard for, for them to, to restore because, you know, everything's working and living on a shoestring. So people tend to think the Amazon, the Great Barrier Reef, you know, but the deserts are super sensitive. And so, you know, it's a, a great natural capital and heritage that you have for yourselves, but, you know, for the rest of humanity, I would say also. That's true. And Stephen, I want to highlight sort of a question that people look into the future and say 2030 is so far away. Certainly, I thought that for a while, but then as the years pass by, you think, okay, actually 2030 is only seven uh, and a half years away or or even less. So I I wonder how close are we to meeting these targets? It's a great question. Uh, 2030 is tomorrow, basically. I would say we're we're dreadfully late uh, in in addressing these aspects. But like I said, you know, your your own country has made some very good progress and many others have done very well too. And bringing everything up to scale and leaving no one behind because it's, it's a common heritage. So the issue will be to make sure that everyone can be a contributor. To, to those global targets. Mm. Uh, a lot of the biodiversity in nature sits in the Southern Hemisphere, non-OECD or developing economies. And you know the global biodiversity framework, which is the main document that will be the deliverable of COP15 for, for biodiversity, has a plan to ensure that we leave no one behind, that the developing world has the opportunity to make its contributions, but of course you need to be fair. And so you know there needs to be resource transfers to allow those countries to make their contributions because they have under their responsibility a lot of the globe's natural heritage uh, to manage. And so we need to have a balanced way and approach to to ensuring that everyone can make their contributions as such. So we'll see, to answer your question, I think we'll see where we stand, maybe, you know, at some milestones before 2030, but it's a huge challenge, of course. And the global biodiversity plan, it's called the GBF, the Global Biodiversity Framework. That's that's the key document. In there, there's key target, there's goals, five goals. There's about 23 targets. There's, some of them have numerical uh, aspects to them and numbering, so you know percentages that they want to secure and so on. Of course, this is still work in progress, and there's a lot of work for our government representatives, environment ministers, and so on, who are attending that to finalize that document. You know, you're you're talking a lot of editing still needs to be done. Mm-hmm. But importantly, that document has a 2050 outlook. They have a vision, humanity living in harmony with nature, basically. So it's aspirational. But again, the next decade will be critical because, like I said, the objective is to reduce that loss of biodiversity and put us on a trajectory of restoring those lost values, mm-hmm. okay, for the sake of biodiversity and nature itself, but of course, the sake of humanity. So it is 
more than just nature and bio, it's about humanity, essentially. We're totally dependent and reliant on nature to live and for, for our lives, but also our livelihoods. And, you know, we tend to live disconnected, increasingly disconnected from nature. So, you know, if you want to talk about some solutions and what the kids and the younger generations can do, uh, I'm very happy to talk about that too, because that's that's where the solution lies, really. Well, you're speaking my language. I've worked on in government, and I know these very large documents, but sometimes you need to roll your sleeves up, get into the nitty gritty, and really get into the essence of of how you start making change and, and finding those solutions. And, and more particular, I, w- I wonder if you could also talk about nature-based solutions and how they work. Yeah, absolutely. So the idea, the concept of nature-based solutions has been with us for a while. It used to be tagged under another term before. So, you know, it's rare that anyone invents anything. You know, we tend to use our predecessors' good ideas and enhance them, you know, and that's what survives. So (laughs) nature-based solutions, you know, it's things essentially using nature to resolve human-induced problems, generally speaking. I'm trying to summarize this because, again, there's several definitions to that. But the idea, and maybe if I use examples, would would probably be more uh, audible for for the audience here. Uh, it's, It's things like using mangroves, you know, to protect your shorelines. And especially in yeah. conditions of climate change, you're having more intense storms, storm surges uh, that will erode your shorelines. If you got a mangrove, essentially, it's going to dissipate the energy. Of course, it has its own limits. So restoring lost mangroves is, is, a, is a nature-based solution. And essentially, you're protecting what sits behind that mangrove, the shoreline, the villages, the fishing grounds, the farmland, the industrial facilities, whatever. You've probably been witnessing all the hurricanes in Philippines recently. Like yeah, massive. True. The surges there, I mean, it's four meters of water, you know, and you're piecing people's, or Pakistan. You know? Yeah. Uh, so climate change is, is, is a reality. It's with us. It's been with us for over 100 years. We've gradually increased by one degree on average across the globe. So it's nothing new. In France, you know, we're seeing the vineyards go further north because uh, it's getting too hot. So... It's got massive impact. So and nature-based solutions is part of that. It's also doing things like planting forests or restoring forests so that they act as natural carbon sinks. And, you know, the great things of mangrove, for example, is that it, it ticks so many boxes and, and you have great mangroves. Thank you. <laughs> I've seen a lot of your publications. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a great playing field, playground for, for people like our R&D team. We have solutions where we mimic the roots and uh, essentially that enhances the mangrove restoration because it allows the mangroves to live in a more stable environment. And so you get those nature-based solutions in place. They will stabilize your shoreline. They act as a food source for fishing, but they act also as a nursery, you know, where young fish come in and live, and, and then they return back to the ocean later. So they're, they're absolutely key, and there's a lot of biodiversity or nature benefits to nature-based solutions too. Another example is, uh, for example, using reed beds to decontaminate water if you have sewage Mm -hmm. essentially sewage is a resource people don't see it like that but in there there's water and there's nutrients it's all there we just need to be clever about how to use that resource someone's waste is somebody else's carbon nitrogen exactly yeah Yeah, absolutely these need to be returned to the system i I could just ramble on for for hours on the stuff (laughs) so yeah we're we're looking at that and you know we're we're integrating that into our business processes it's taking a bit of time uh, it's fair Mm -hmm. to say because one of the issues is you know all the stuff nature-based solutions as the name indicates they are alive so 
they will react to climate change too. Yeah. And we don't really know how they will react to climate change. Will they be resilient? Things adapt, sure, but they take time. Exactly. Stephen, if you don't mind, I want you to get us into the nature positive world and what is happening internationally in that sense. Uh, and also maybe locally in the UAE, if you can comment on that. Absolutely. It's becoming a goal and ambition for many stakeholders, including business. Like I said, there's no absolute or clear consensus on, on the definition, but in short, it means more nature tomorrow. Okay. And mm-hmm. the idea is that all the different stakeholders, you know, whether it's civil society, governments, especially governments, but the business also, uh, make contributions to this nature positive ambition which is an ambition for the globe. And so that concept sits in the global biodiversity plan that I mentioned that the UN Convention on Biological Diversity is working on uh, for COP15 in Montreal. So we should see that as an ambition, so a keystone for a lot of other things to rely on. So more nature means a whole array of actions. Like I said, it's not necessarily something that is totally new. We're not starting from scratch. There's a lot of existing processes that are already in place where we've integrated biodiversity into the way we do our business. So we we assess, for example, the sensitivity of a given location before we enter it. And then we uh, try and avoid impacts. What we can't avoid, we try and mitigate. What we can't entirely mitigate, we try and restore. And sometimes you end up with a ne- negative residual impact, uh, which you offset or compensate Okay, with through a variety of actions. Usually you restore somebody else's impacts or you protect an area that is not legally protected, but you, you make it protected. And that can be a contribution to the national areas network of protected areas of a given country. So that means you, you have to have what we call the mitigation hierarchy embedded into your approaches. And that is a key or fundamental principle for, for business, but also how governments uh, construct their regulations. And that puts you on track for being nature positive. Okay, by wanting to avoid your impacts, like mm-hmm. I said, there's a sequence and a logic. What you can't avoid, you try and mitigate, you restore, and what you can't entirely restore, you try and compensate. And so everyone can be a, con- a contributor, at least you know when you're working in a landscape or in a seascape. Yeah. And so the regulations need to reflect that. That's very important. Uh, so you know I can only encourage countries to integrate those approaches into the policy settings that then are applicable to various human activities but it is it's, it can be challenging of course because you know if you're talking about farming there's a lot of smallholders mm-hmm. what can a smallholder do yeah. you know uh, it's diffuse that's where the challenges start and things will be exacerbated in terms of difficulty because of climate change so sure. the the levels of stress are increased and you also see wars and cri- different crises that derail all the ambitions of various states or people because they get sidetracked with bigger priorities that are immediate, which is to be safe and to feed themselves. Yeah, absolutely. So nature positive, I think, is is key, but it's got some challenges in front of it. Um, and we have to stay steady on, on that trajectory. So first, we need a plan. We need that global biodiversity plan that the UN Convention of Biological Diversity is preparing, where we kind of essentially say, well, this is what we're going to do. These are our targets. We're going to help people who have less resources to do it. And our keystone ambition is nature positive. This living in harmony with nature essentially underpins that. So trying to seek through uh, policy, through 
business contributions, civil society contributions, uh, the conservation communities' contributions to protecting nature, all these things are input to being nature positive. Mm -hmm. Okay. What we have to be careful of also is that this doesn't just become another buzzword and disappears. So, and there's a lot of those. Yeah. Especially in a hyper connected world we live in. So it needs to be made very tangible. I, I would ask, actually, to that effect, what is the business reaction and approach to nature positive practices? I mean, it, it is the future, as we say. We've elaborated on how impactful it can be. And after all, we're, you know, all of our next generation of international workforce will certainly be learning, uh, you know, and leaning towards this as a career path. But as you're saying, you don't want it to become a buzzword. What is the current reaction from businesses? So confusion at first, because <laughs> it's a, a very, very busy space. A lot of various initiatives are talking about nature positive and hopefully we'll see convergence because you don't want people to start becoming competitive on this kind of stuff because... Yeah, that doesn't seem conducive. Like I said, we're all there in the same boat, you know, and and so we need to get, you know, the right dynamic where we have public-private partnerships, so good understanding between governments and the private sector, for example, and the roles that civil society plays, because those are our neighbors when we're, for example, we have one of our industrial assets in a given location, we have neighbors, you know, and we interact with those people. They could also be the same people who are employees. And, you know, they want to protect their environment, they want a healthy environment, so they have a role to play. And, you know, we, we for example, have some sites where we have very, very intense engagement processes with our local stakeholders to make sure that we pick up on their expectations and integrate them as best as we can in our industrial business processes for protecting nature. Mm -hmm. So refinery is not always the nicest thing to necessarily have next door, but uh, sometimes what's happened is that cities have grown up to that refinery's boundaries and you have to learn to live together. So instead of having a neighbor that you are in uh, conflict with, you know, you try and create synergies through stakeholder engagement so that you can find common goals. And, and I think by awareness and education, you can achieve already a lot. And that comes back to one of your other points in terms of the younger generations. Mm -hmm. But for me, uh, as part of our own biodiversity program, what underpins one of the fundamental pieces of, of the program is, is awareness and education. We have a, a significant biodiversity training program, oh, wow. which essentially addresses you know, the needs uh, for, for a whole array of people. We have 110,000 staff in our company. So in there, we don't only have biodiversity people or environment people or HSC people. We have accountants, uh, um, you know, uh, human resources, management, and so on. So we have designed uh, an awareness and training program that is suited fit for purpose to all this, this range of individuals. And that came a bit late uh, in, in the process, but it's in place. And for me, it's probably one of the most critical things because if you win people's hearts, yeah. you know, they start to see things that they didn't see before. And that applies to civil society. So you know, if you have the kids behind their screens playing video games, okay, fine. Uh, but, you know, they are not outside doing scuba diving, exploring the mangroves, yeah, tre trekking through deserts and so on, you know. So that exposure is really, really critical. And it starts there because there's uh, an expectation from a lot of fringe of, of society to see better practices, uh, sure. better policies for, from government, better 
better performance from industry. I mean, the level of scrutiny that we receive is, is pretty mm-hmm. staggering and it increments every year. So we have to show more and more skin and, and be more and more transparent. The rating agencies, our investors, our shareholders, they all want to see most transparency as they can. And yeah. the, the positive collateral of that is that the public can see more of what we do. And you know, we a lot of what we do, we do in partnership with big NGOs, because yeah. we remain an energy company, we have some people that are hyper specialized, uh, you know, in various fields. But we we need partners to deliver, especially on on nature related aspects when we do uh, enhancement programs for for nature rest- restoration programs. We rely on these partnerships, and so you know that is giving additional visibility, especially to a younger audience, as to maybe activities that they were not expecting industry would be conducting. And that in itself is is a job. So, <laughs> yeah, and the UAE especially focuses a lot on that concept. I think, uh, Majid, uh, we were mentioning the other day about uh, what the UAE did exactly. Yeah. So, look, I mean, the UAE has done a lot, and I'd, I'd love your your feedback on this, Stephen. But we've last October announced ambitious step to reduce carbon emissions by 2050, with a plan of investing some 600 billion dirhams in clean and renewable energy sources over the next three decades. But there's a lot of visibility for the youth, for everybody here in the country, of what we're trying to do. On the international stage, COP26, the UAE joined more than 100 countries in agreeing to reverse deforestation and single-use plastics being banned in Abu Dhabi. Now, these are all different aspects that we're tackling. There's a lot of dynamicism where we are. Do you see this globally as well? Is is everybody moving at this pace? Yeah, it'll be variable according to, you know, the level of uh, awareness and, and the, essentially the national resources available. So, of course, financial resources are key to, to making this work. But I, I, I think uh, what's paramount is the education again. Mm-hmm. So, you know, embedding nature positive type concepts in, in school books. Yeah, there's a lot of that. So they just become normal, you know, and the kids come home and they make the parents feel guilty because they haven't they haven't done the right thing. And also, you know, hand in hand with that goes some some tangible actions that people can feel empowered with. And you know, we we have these little trump cards. Uh, so we 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 these are things that we distribute, you know, for our staff so that they can take this home and and apply it, you know. And it's like the ten daily tips on biodiversity, and you know, it's like. One is reconnecting with nature, go to a museum and find out about the nature. And I'm sure you guys have great museums on that. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, um, yeah. Anything that is environmental usually is good for nature. You mentioned there were single-use plastics, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle. And, and that doesn't end up in the ocean in the form of microplastics or or as straws down uh, turtles noses, you know. So eat organic if you can, if you, mm-hmm. if you can afford it. And you know, fisheries, you know, use sustainably sourced uh, fisheries. Uh, for food, uh, if you if you like reconnect with nature on your balcony by by growing a vegetable garden, and yeah. these are simple things to create that awareness. It's it's very easy, you know. It's also think like well, think twice about taking the plane. How much maybe try and discover yeah. more of you know the natural heritage of your own country. It's, it's stuff like that. Uh, you can get kids to join various organizations, associations that protect nature. You know, like plastic waste pickups, and it creates a bonding uh, effect, which is really key. And so, if you can scale that up to a national level, it's great. Absolutely. And for that to happen, it needs to go through the schooling system. You know, that mm-hmm. they have a, a critical role to play there. No doubt, no doubt. I think you know, all parties here are responsible. We have to work together. We mentioned on a previous episode the uh, the importance of 
curbing the single-use plastics impacts in our city in general and the UAE, and how quickly sort of the business side of things adapted to a new reality. You asked me last year uh, how many of my friends had tote bags in their cars. I would tell you probably none of them. But this year, all of, an, all of, a, all of a sudden, having like fancy tote bags and walking around with, with you know, <laughs> grocery shopping. Things change. Absolutely. I'm I know I have two always in the bag as well, in the car as well, two bags always at the ready. I mean, I sometimes forget they're in the bag, so I have to run back after I'm at the cashier. But, you know, it, I won't pick up a plastic bag because I know that's the, the new practice. And it's become really sort of the recurring theme whenever we have done an episode this season, which is that awareness and that education is so key. And it's it's good to hear that not only we're doing it here, but sort of internationally, that is really one of the cornerstones to be able to make this difference. There's some great examples like Rwanda has made, you know, single-use plastic bags illegal. You know, sometimes it goes that far. I always remember, you know, when I was a kid, what the roads looked like in France, you know, there was a lot of waste and litter. And, and now you, you go ballistic if you see somebody throwing a plastic can out the car window. Mm. Um, so I think um, things change, you know, we don't, the thing is, you're you're in it, so you don't necessarily see that change, uh, you know, in the short term. But when you take a step back and and look over your shoulder, and you realize, well, okay, things have changed. And maybe if you have kids, your kid will make you go on a guilt trip because you haven't got that uh, that, <laughs> that bag that you forgot in the boots of your car. Yeah, they started lecturing me already. <laughs> They're there to remind us for sure. But I mean, it's it, yeah, absolutely. We, we live on debt or credits on their world, you know, and in the world that they will live in the future. So. I think uh, that that's enough incentive, really, to, for anyone to to try and make that effort. Um, but again, you know, it's 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 a challenge, and it's mm-hmm. maybe easier for some societies to say that to pay attention to nature and the environment than others when you know your priority is to have food in in your plate the next day. So that is very important, and that that common approach is key. So uh, of of leaving no one behind to to avoid you know creating a gap. Mm-hmm. When it comes to the government side of things, I remember watching a documentary, uh, I think a couple of years ago, called An Inconvenient Truth. And part of that documentary, they highlight how COP21, I think, uh, in 2015, how the politics of that event sort of helped give us a new trajectory for for climate action and uh, the importance of of uh, internationalizing climate. I wonder if you can share with us your understanding of the importance of COP. Uh, I would say it's easy to grasp. Imagine what would happen if they weren't cops. Essentially, they'd be a mess. So yeah. it's not a perfect system in the United Nations, but they're trying really hard. There's very dedicated people. And, you know, we need this this global harmonized approach that we can still continue talking and building together. So that's why the cops are absolutely critical. And, you know, despite that being in place, it's, it's, it is immensely challenging to get agreement you know, on, on these things. And we feel it. We live it every day here in Europe because it's one of the regions of the world where, you know, there's 27 members and we're trying to get them, you know, it's consensus based. And so it's very hard. So the, the, the more around the table, the more powerful your, your output is, but the more challenging it is to get that consensus because it is a multi-stakeholder kind of approach. Absolutely. Absolutely. But we have to try. You, 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 you fail on you when you stop trying. There's an interesting point where you're talking about all of these international bodies and COP being there for climate. And when we were talking about biodiversity, the International Union of Conservation of Nature actually in 
2021 welcomed a, a UAE national as the president. And it was Razana Mubarak, who uh, was the first woman from the Arab world to head the IUCN. And it's it's finding more female-led and consensus-building organizations that work together, whether you're on biodiversity or climate or you know, all these organizations internationally work together. And it, it's it's something we could be proud of to have one of our own leading such an important organization. And I know that we're going to be doing the same in COP27. And then that leads on to us hosting here in the UAE, COP28. And we saw a rising to the call uh, in making and helping in this consensus building exercise across the globe. It's something where I think for our people, and I've, I've even independently been doing some information and general awareness on social media for people to understand what is COP and how do we get involved? What is the ICN and why is it important? And so as we're doing podcasts and, you know, these different pieces of information, I, I you know, I think we're in a good place in the next few years to see some resounding consensus or some resounding support here in the country and in the region. That's good to hear. And that's what you need. Yeah, and and you, you need to hammer at it, you know, don't let the problem get bigger. Yeah, You need that diversity and difference in perspectives. That's what gets you out of a mess. And the challenge is, is enormous because we are essentially in a double world crisis, a climate crisis and a biodiversity crisis. Yeah. So the combination of the two make an even bigger crisis. So it is with us and we have to tackle the problem. Just, I mean, you, you said you have kids, so you know, for their sake and, and yes. their kids' sake. So it, it's pretty simple, the, but uh, humanity is what it is. And we started as hunter-gatherers and have a, quite an individualistic uh, approach, but humans evolved into societies realizing that they could get more benefits living together. So, you know, we need to pursue that process and live together uh, in a sustainable manner, essentially. Absolutely, absolutely. And and, and it clearly takes uh, people coming together and everyone doing their part. And speaking of, of that, I sometimes uh, like to look in the mirror and uh, ask myself, what am I doing to kind of support and help and aid either myself, my community, my government in, in different ways? And so from your perspective, what can people like me do to be more nature positive? How can I do that? Uh, continue for, foremost doing what you're doing right now. Uh, that awareness that you're generating is immense. It's a huge contribution. So continue that, I would say. Not everyone has the necessarily the opportunity to be sitting behind the mic and, and, and talking out on podcasts. But, you know, in today's age, a lot of people can do that or at least contribute to them with their good ideas. Uh, you can join all these different associations and conservation bodies that are trying to do things. And sometimes, you know, they're very, very humble and very uh, limited in their scope because they're very, very local. And try and find out maybe next time, try and get a list of your ne- for your next podcast, so, you know, some of the key actors doing stuff, you know, on the ground, because it's very tangible and people, it makes you feel good when you do this stuff. It really does. True. It's like going for a run, you know, you feel incredibly gratifying. So in our biodiversity program, we have the opportunity to allow all our staff to give up to three workdays every year to uh, civic engagement actions. So we, we have a short list of these and it's like going, pulling up invasive plants in the forest to help restore the forest. And these things, they bond people, you know, everyone likes nature mostly. <laughs> so it's an easy sell. And I think you as an individual, yeah, um, the, the awareness raising, anything that is related to education, direct participation, you know, trying to 
be a bit more conscious of how you consume, how you use things, whether it's energy, water. I mean, you guys, water stress is a, is a big one for you. So think of what you can do for that and, you know, reducing your water consumption, spending less time under the shower. I mean, there's some very basic things and these are all environmental more than nature, but ultimately because everything is connected, it you're reducing the pressure, you know, maybe crank down the air conditioning a bit. It, it may seem trivial, but in fact it isn't because, you know, all this gets added up and the savings are also not just for nature, it's also for your wallet. So yeah. that, that's an important dimension. The crunch comes when the basic commodities increase and, and all the nice things people want to do towards nature kind of fly out the window because you're under pressure. And now we have to brace ourselves because climate change is coming and it's like I said, it's with us and things will just get more challenging over the next years. That's That's a given. But humans have these things called hands, you know, mm-hmm. and they're the most hands, sophisticated yeah tool in the universe. So, you know, we have to be optimistic and, you know, we have to have faith in people. I think naturally uh, people want to do the right thing when they can. Mm-hmm. We mustn't be too candid and naive and, uh, about it, but every contribution helps basically there. Sorry, this sounds a little bit like rhetoric, but I, I think it's true. I'm with you there. And honestly, my question to you then, in terms of raising awareness, what would your message be to young people, the future leaders, or the concerned citizens of the Emirates? Like what would in short, be your message to them? I'd say seek opportunities to enshrine nature, conservation and protection in, in what you do. Whether, you know, if you're a policy setter, then you, you try and do more on the policy front. If you're in civil society, take a more active role in that. If you're a teacher, you know, uh, promote it through, through your classes, uh, formally or informally, if you can. Uh, if you're a business, you know, develop biodiversity policies and ambitions and, and try and live up to uh, some commitments same applies for for states. So it's what we call, sorry, this is a very UN term, mainstreaming biodiversity. You integrate biodiversity through every angle you can. And one day you'll you'll turn around and look over your shoulder and you go, oh, okay, you know, this is just normal. You'll see it less and less because it's just part of your culture. Easier said than done. (laughs) You have to be realistic. Well, listen, I'm glad we've had the opportunity to hear all that you've had to share. Thank you, Stephen. It's been incredible. Stephen Dickinson, a corporate biodiversity expert with Total Energies. Thank you so much for being with us. Pleasure. Thanks. All right. Well, that leaves me to say, how do people get in touch with us? Abdurrahman, take it away. Yes, guys, please get in touch. Reach out with comments or even with a story to tell. Tell us what you think about the show, about this episode. Find us, as always, on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Environment Abu Dhabi. You can also find us on our website or on YouTube, Environment Agency Abu Dhabi. Give us a like and hit the subscribe wherever you find or listen to your podcasts. And that was season two. And you will catch us, hopefully, on season three. Abdurrahman, it's been an absolute pleasure to do this show with you. And thank you to Environment Agency Abu Dhabi. And I hope you've all enjoyed the learning journey. We'll look forward to hearing from you soon. And this leaves only me to say, from us signing off, Majid here saying bye. And this is Abdurrahman. It was a pleasure to host this podcast. Thank you for being with us.